we're uh, eager to get into our study uh, for uh, this morning. So let's bow our heads. Let's have a word of uh, prayer, and then we'll get into what the Lord has to say to us today. So I invite you to bow your heads and your hearts with me now. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day and the opportunity we have uh, to come together uh, in spirit and in truth and and uh, press together as we see the things around us and we see that prophecy is being fulfilled. The signs of Christ's soon coming are gleaming all over this world and we want to be ready to meet him. We want to be found faithful and we want others to be found faithful. So, Father, we've come together here uh, to, to learn the truth. Uh, we ask the Holy Spirit to be given to us to cultivate a love for the truth within each one of us, a love for uh, humanity, that love that Jesus has for us, we want to have as as well. Uh, please forgive us our sins. And Lord, I pray that you be with those who couldn't be with us today, be with those who are on an ill uh, ill bed, a sick bed, be very near to them, and uh, bless them, Father. And uh, I pray that you'll give me the words to speak today. And may we each have a mind like that of Christ and be able to reach souls for the kingdom. Thank you for the Sabbath day for hearing this prayer. I ask it in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, who is so worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. I'm glad to be with you today, uh, beloved. Uh, I want to take a look at a subject uh, concerning the sin issue uh, that I consider very relevant to understand before we get into the Bible principles on how we are to deal with sin between individuals and corporately. You know, church to church or individual to church, whichever the situation may be. Uh, I know I've been talking about that for a few weeks, but we will get to that. We will get to that. But uh, it was brought to my attention this week as I was thinking about it that this subject really needs to be... Um, we need to think about this subject before we get into those principles. And uh, I'm not sure that there are that many people who have, who have really considered this uh, topic much at all, uh, at least in the context of the sin issue. Uh, but let me tell you something. We've all done it. <laughs> We've all done it, and we still do it to some degree, so I think it behooves us to know about it and be careful about it before we step out to deal uh, with what may be perceived or what we might perceive as wrong or you know, as sin or sinful. In fact, if we don't learn about this, and by God's grace gain control over the temptation to do this, uh, we will be among those who will be deceived by those great signs and wonders of the last day. So would you like to know what it is I'm speaking about, friends? And that is the purpose of this study. <laughs> All right. Now Jesus gave... Um, several warnings to his followers concerning their future and the closing scenes in the great controversy between good and evil. And one such warning is found, uh, well, there's several signs and things that he lists there in Matthew 24. So let's go to Matthew 24, but I want to show you one, one warning that, that he specifically talks about, and it's found in verse 24 of Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 24. Jesus said, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, I know that uh, you've probably heard that scripture many times before and there's there is uh, so much that we could learn from that scripture. I spend a lot of time just on that verse. But what I want to bring to your attention is the part of this verse that concerns uh, the reaction to perception. And the question is, is what we perceive necessarily the truth? Is what we see necessarily the truth? Are we seeing what we are seeing? <laughs> or is it skewed, a skewed perception? And do we jump to conclusions upon that perception before it's verified? Well, just what is perception? What is perception? 
Well, Webster's Dictionary puts it this way. It says, perception is awareness of the elements of environment through physical sensation. Physical sensation interpreted in the light of experience. That's what Webster says. So in other words, perception, perception is the way we receive and interpret the information we are presented with. And so perception has a lot to do with our sense organs, doesn't it? You know, the eyes, the nose, the ears, the mouth, uh, even the skin, right? Then our brains must organize and interpret what our sense organs receive. And then it converts it into information about the environment around us. Now, educators say that there are three factors that make up perception. First, there's the, the detection. That is sensing the stimulus, they say. The second thing is then recognition, and that's identifying that stimulus. And the third thing they say is discrimination. That's differentiating between the stimuli. Look at it as uh, uh, telling the difference between different musical notes, for example. So, our senses receive or detect stimulus and our brain attempts to identify and differentiate it. Right? There are many factors that affect what we perceive. Isn't that true? Including, you know, personal experience, um, expectations, and physical, um, emotional, and, and psychological influences. Also, um, motivation, and this is a big one really, motivation can determine our perception. Emotions can prevent uh, perception entirely. Did you know that? You know, such as when an emotional shock, sometimes you, you, you maybe you've heard of this or you've read about it before somewhere, uh, somebody goes into shock and they may temporarily lose their hearing. Or they might lose their sight. They might be blind for a while. Um, we, we are also more likely to perceive things that are related to our motivation. For example, when I'm in a deep thought or study, my hearing receptor almost entirely shuts down to the sound of my wife's voice. <laughs> now, I don't do that on purpose, but I'm in deep study. And it also has something to do with the differences between how God created the, the and, and wired men's brains versus the, the ladies' brains. But, but that's an example, you know. So that's what uh, a perception, how they define perception, perception and, and some of the things that have to do with perception. So knowing and hopefully understanding this, the defining perception, is it possible that our perception could at times be inaccurate? And most people will say, well, yeah, sometimes I have been wrong. That's, that's a hard word for some people to say. <laughs> oh, I was wrong, right? Is it, is it possible that our perception... Now, some people might say, not very often. <laughs> but it is possible that our perception could at times be inaccurate in several ways, Right? Our senses could be failing, for example, or not working up to the best of their capabilities. And this plays right into um, what the Bible teaches about the, the uh, health reform. Because God's trying to improve on the, the detectors of our brain, right? But because of maybe uh, failing health or our senses are failing or not working the best that they can, our detection could be flawed. We may think we heard someone say one thing when they actually said something else, and that happens quite a lot, doesn't it? Especially between uh, married couples, I would say. You said such and such. No, that's not what I said. I said this. No, I heard you say that. <laughs> so it happens quite often, see? This communication mix-up 
uh, I mean, it, it's something that we should step back and, and kind of take a look at and realize that this has to do with perception. We could have problems recognizing and even differentiating, uh, you know, what was detected. So it's a good thing to trust entirely. It, uh, well, let me ask you this. Is it a good thing to trust entirely upon one's own senses to form a perception of reality? Can't we trust trust our own senses 100%? Can we trust them 50%? Well, I don't know, right? I know that we shouldn't trust them 100%. Is it a good thing to trust entirely upon one's own recognition and discrimination of what the senses have provided? Well, from my own experience, I will say no. Trusting entirely to our senses, at least in this world, friends, in this sinful world, trusting entirely to our senses often leads us to jump to conclusions. Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen it done? Jumping to conclusions is a it's a psychological term referring to a communication obstacle where a person judges or decides something as a fact without having all the facts, but still thinking they have enough of the facts to reach warranted conclusions. So that becomes their perception, and thus they believe it to be reality. But it isn't reality, is it? Of course, none of us do that, right? None of us jump to conclusions. But it can be difficult not to at times, isn't that right? We're all human beings. Uh, and that's one of the things uh, that we tend to do as faulty human beings. And so we need to observe that. We need to understand that. And we need to begin to learn about ourselves. And that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit will do is teach us about ourselves and our character and where we have these flaws when we compare our character to that righteous character of Christ which is depicted in the law of God. Amen? Now let me share this with you. It's from a devotional book entitled Our High Calling. Our High Calling, page 71. The corruption of the world is seeking to steal our senses. All the unholy influences on every side are working to hold us to a low, earthly level, blinding our sensibilities. You see that? Blinding our sensibilities, degrading our desires, enfeebling our conscience and crippling our religious faculties by urging us to give sway to the lower nature. And that lower nature is the carnal nature. But you see, through the Holy Spirit and being born again, the higher powers, which is our mind, which is controlled by the Holy Spirit, can have uh, um, sway over the lower senses, the lower nature. That's how it's referred to, the lower nature. As Christians, we must keep our affections upon Jesus and not the world, for the world will dull our senses. And, so, and then our perception becomes skewed, you see. But the world will have us feed the lower nature, which is the carnal heart or the flesh, is what Paul refers to it as. Now, Christians are to have control of that lower nature, and the only way to do this is to have a mind like that of Christ. As Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So let's consider this in light of our Savior's words of warning we read earlier in Matthew 24, verse 24. Remember, he said that there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Have you ever given much thought as to why these great uh, signs and wonders were performed to begin with? Just why are they being performed? 
What is the motivation behind these signs and wonders? Well, the last part of the verse gives us the answer, right? They are an attempt to deceive the very elect. And who are the very elect? Who is Jesus speaking about here? Well, to know who are the very elect, let's go to two places in the Bible. First, let's look at Revelation 14. We're going to look at the first five verses of Revelation chapter 14. Beginning with verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song, but the hundred and forty and four thousand, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they, notice, here's the description of these people here, verse 4, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Of course, this is symbolic language, friends. They were not defiled with women, women representing church, and since they're virgins, it represents God's church, a pure church. These are they which follow the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Here's a description of the very elect that Jesus is speaking of, talking about in Matthew 24, verse 24. Go down to verse 12 of Revelation 14, and it states this about the very elect. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And so this describes a special group of people who live at the end of time, and it is with these people that the beasts that we read about in Revelation 13 pour out their anger and fury at. This is a, it's this group of people here that these great signs and wonders are being performed for in an attempt to deceive them. And that's what he does first, see. Before his fury is to be poured out, the second beast will attempt to deceive them. You see, he wants to gain their allegiance if he can first, and he tries different methods. If you go back through history, and you look at God's people through history, the devil has always done this. He's tried bribery. And it's worked sometimes. He's then, if that doesn't work, a lot of times he tries coercion. See? He tries to persuade. There are different ways he tries. And ultimately, he will uh, reach a point with those who would rather die than sin, like Daniel, for example. He'll throw you in the lion's den. <laughs> See? But he uses the avenue of their carnal senses in an attempt to ultimately deceive them with an incredible miracle. This is what we were reading about. And this miracle deceives the whole world. And if it were possible, would deceive the very elect as Jesus warned about. And this miracle has to do with perception between what is reality according to God and what is false reality according to Satan. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13. And let's read. We'll begin with verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles, you see, it is the miracles that deceive them, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. Now what I want to hone in on is that this miracle was done in the sight of men. 
The beast, in an effort to deceive the elect, did these miracles. It deceives the rest of the world. Okay? But why does this not deceive the very elect? Now, Jesus said it was going to be so strong that if it was even possible, it would deceive them. Which says that they won't be deceived. What is different about this group? Could it have something to do with the way they verify their perception? Is seeing, believing for them, or do they have a different approach as to the gathering of discriminating, discriminating stimuli? <laughs> I remember back in the um, 80s, the 1980s, yes, I'm that old, when... Ronald Reagan was the President of the United States, and he was asked about whether or not he should trust his communist adversary. You remember him, those of you older like me. You know, Soviet leader Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev. You remember him? How many of you remember this? Now, this was during what was called the Cold War, and the young among us don't have any experience with that, but it was a time of escalating nuclear weapons and there was a fear that hung over the people of the world that there would be a nuclear war between the United States and the then Soviet Union. So when President Reagan was asked if we should trust Gorbachev, you guys recall what his reply was? He said, trust but verify. Trust, but verify. And this actually became his official stance towards the Soviet Union. And I actually heard this phrase uh, repeated by a reporter the other night when asked about the, the recent reports made public by the U.S. intelligence agencies. Trust, but verify. When our senses are controlled by a mind like that of Christ, we're going to test the information acquired by the senses against the will of God, as laid out in His Word. Before we come to a conclusion, uh, a final conclusion, as to reality. What is reality? And sometimes doing this uh, can be done very quickly. And sometimes not so quickly. Now, there are several experiences in the Bible that we could look at that deal with faulted perceptions of reality. For example, um, the accusation against Joseph by Potiphar's wife. You remember that? She saw Joseph and, and she lusted after Joseph. Let's go to Genesis 39. And she wanted to sleep with Joseph. And he wanted to be true to God. And uh, she came at him one time when they were alone in the house and he ran out and she had his garment. Well, look at Genesis 39, verse 16. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. That would be Potiphar. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. Now, that was, that's an interesting Hebrew word there, mock me. Uh, the same Hebrew word is found in Genesis 26 and verse 8. Um, it's an expression that is translated in English as sporting. S-P-O-R-T-I-N-G. Sporting. It refers to conduct that is proper only between a husband and wife. <laughs> okay? And so she says, he came unto me to mock me, sporting, she says. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled out. Which is very interesting. She didn't say, I was holding his garment. She said that Joseph left his garment. Gives a little bit more emphasis to her false accusation, doesn't it? Verse 19, it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. Now, here we have this example here, 
Wouldn't you think, if what she was saying was true, wouldn't you think that there were those who saw, uh, maybe they weren't in the house, they were out of the house, maybe they were in a lower room of the house, wherever they may have been, don't you think there were some there who would have saw a naked Joseph running away as they heard Potiphar's wife screaming? And those witnesses, what about their perception of what's going on? They were receiving information through the senses of sight and hearing and possibly forming a faulty perception by that stimuli that they were receiving. Right? And then they would come to what kind of conclusion and what would they think reality is, see? And didn't Potiphar's wife swear to her husband that Joseph had committed a sin against her? That would lead Potiphar to perceive things in a wrong light as well. Isn't that correct? And we just read it there. His wrath was kindled. Now let me ask you this, this question. What was it that kept Potiphar from executing Joseph immediately? You know, he could have. He could have had him taken right out and killed right then. But he didn't. He didn't because Potiphar knew the character traits of his wife and he knew the character traits of Joseph. So he was checking his perception, what he was hearing, what was coming in through his senses against those traits, that experience, those experiences that he knew to be true. You could say that Potiphar was trusting but verifying. Now, I think there is a great example, maybe a, even a better example, of misperception found in Joshua chapter 22. Now, this is during the time that Israel had entered the promised land, and they were going through the land, driving out all the inhabitants according to God's will in that regard, so that they could get their inheritance. God had instructed them to do this. In Joshua chapter 22, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time here in this chapter, Beginning with verse 1. Then Joshua called the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said unto them, Ye have kept all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. Ye have not left your brethren these many days unto this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God hath given rest unto your brethren as he promised them. Therefore now return ye and get you unto your tents and unto the land of your possession, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side of Jordan. But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses the servant of the Lord charged you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cleave unto him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Friends, we need that example in our own lives. Amen? Verse 6, So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went unto their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession in Bashan. But unto the other half thereof gave Joshua among their brethren on this side Jordan westward. So in other words, Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh was split by the Jordan River. Part of the land was on one side, the east side. Part of it was on the west side. And when Joshua sent them away also under their tents, then he blessed them. And he spake unto them, saying, Return with much riches unto your tents, and with very much cattle, with silver, and with gold, and with brass, and with iron, and with very much raiment. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. And the children of Reuben, and the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel out of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go unto the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, whereof they were, were possessed according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And so, two of the tribes of Israel, Gad and Reuben, with half the tribe of Manasseh, had received their inheritance before crossing the Jordan to drive out the rest of the inhabitants. Okay? The two and a half tribes 
desiring to settle there at the time, had pledged themselves. They, they told them, we're going to furnish our portion of armed men for the army of Israel to go in and drive out the inhabitants for all of your inheritance. Okay? So they, they accompanied their brethren across the Jordan. They fought in those battles until it was finished, and then they could, could enter into their inheritance, you see. About six or seven years they were over there in subduing the land of Canaan. So these two and a half tribes had been absent from their homes and families for a long period of time while fulfilling their obligation. They had given of their best, you see, to be a blessing to their brethren. They were in unity. This is, If you think about this, this was a time in Israel where they were completely obedient to God. You see, and they had love, so much love for one another that they they helped each other to fight the battles. Oh, if it was like that today for all of Christianity, wouldn't it be something? Now the time had come uh, for them to get back to the land of their possession across the Jordan. Let's go to verse 10. Joshua 22, verse 10. And when they came unto the borders of Jordan that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, built there an altar by Jordan, a great altar to see to. So, as the two and a half tribes crossed the Jordan again back to their inheritance, they decided to build an altar on their side of the river near the place where uh, Israel had that miraculous passage through Jordan. And they built this altar. It was similar to the altar burnt offering that was at Shiloh. Now Shiloh is where the sanctuary of God uh, was now located. It was there uh, before Solomon had the sanctuary permanently built at Jerusalem. You see, before then it, it was always at Shiloh. So here we start to see how we can get the wrong perception of things if we don't verify what we're perceiving. Look at verses 11 and 12. And the children of Israel heard say, they heard a rumor. Behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar over against the land of Canaan in the borders of Jordan at the passage of the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against those two and a half tribes. You see, the law of God prohibited, on pain of death, the establishment of another worship other than that at the sanctuary. And if this was the object of this altar that those two and a half tribes had built, it would, if permitted to remain, lead the people away from the true faith. This was what they were, were hearing and what they were believing And so the representatives of the people assembled there at Shiloh and in the heat of their excitement and indignation proposed to go to war at once upon the offenders. They'd heard it said that an altar similar to the one at Shiloh had been built and their perception was that it could only mean that they were breaking the law of God. They'd made up their mind that their perception was accurate. So accurate that they gathered for war to slay their supposed guilty brethren. There's a lesson there, isn't there? Are you learning the lesson here? You seeing things? But there were some there who reasoned this may not be accurate. These were experienced brethren. And they said, Let's trust the news, but let's verify it. Look at verse 13. Joshua twenty-two thirteen, 13. And the children of Israel sent unto the children of Reuben, and to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest. Let me ask you, have you ever heard of Phinehas before? You've heard of Phineas? I hope you have. 
Phineas had distinguished himself by his zeal for the Lord at Baal Peor. You recall what had happened at Baal Peor? This was the last great sin that Israel committed before going into the promised land. It hadn't happened that too far back, you know, 10, 15 years or so. Probably at the earliest seven years, I'd say, before. So a lot of this was still fresh memory, you see. And so here Phineas, he, he was distinguished now. As a result of the wickedness there at Belpeor, the Lord sent a plague upon Israel. And it's recorded in Numbers 25, and I encourage you to read the entire chapter sometime. But here, here's the act of Phineas at that time at Belpeor. If you look at Numbers 25, verses 6 to 8. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses. The Midianitish woman, friends, is like the a lot of the ladies you see in Western culture today. Sad to say. The way they dressed and the makeup and the jewelry and the, they were a whorish kind of woman. And here, uh, uh, one of the, and he happened to be one of the princes of Israel, brought one of these Midianitish women into the camp in the sight of Moses in the sight, and it says here, and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, that's a spear, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent. See, this man brought this woman went into his tent not just to have a conversation. And it says there, he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. So it went through the man and the woman. So you know they were performing a particular act. But I want you to notice, where was Moses and Aaron at this time? And most of the other people. They were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They were praying and weeping. Friends, I want to tell you something. There is a time for praying, beloved. There definitely is. And there is a time for action, though. Something al along with prayers and tears are needed in a time when reproach and peril are hanging over God's people. The wicked works must be brought to an end. When you know the right thing to do and you do it not, what is that? The Bible says that's sin. Phineas knew the right thing to do and he did it. He eventually became the high priest. And actually, the very work of justice that Phineas did was an atonement for Israel. And so that's why the Lord blessed uh, his house and he eventually became the high priest over Israel. Which brings us back to Joshua chapter 22 where the children of Israel sent this same Phineas, see, to verify. They were trusting the word that they received, but they were going to verify it. Look at Joshua 22 and uh, verse 14. So Phineas goes, and with him ten princes of each chief house, a, a prince throughout all the tribes of Israel, and each one was ahead of the house of their fathers among the thousands of Israel. And they came into the children of Reuben and to the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh unto the land of Gilead, and they spake with them. Now, this wasn't just a a group of guys that were, you know, the whole con the, the whole of the other tri nine and a half tribes got together and said, let's draw lots and see who goes. <laughs> no, these were the leading men of Israel. So when these two and a half tribes saw these guys, they knew something very serious was going on. 
because these were the top. These were the echelon leaders of these tribes. And so they come here and uh, verse 16, this is what they said to him. Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord. What trespass is this that ye have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord in that ye have builded you an altar that ye might rebel this day against the Lord? Is the iniquity of Peor too little for us? See, they're referring back to Baal Peor. Is the iniquity of Peor too little for us from which we are not cleansed until this day? We're still reeling from what happened from Baal Peor. We have orphans still living in our tribes from what happened at Baal Peor, from the plague, see? And they said, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that ye must turn away this day from following the Lord, and it will be, seeing you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be wroth with the whole congregation of Israel. I want you to notice the corporate accountability here. See, what you're doing is going to bring the wrath of God on all of us. This is what they're saying. Verse 19. Notwithstanding, if the land of your possession be unclean, then pass ye over unto the land of the possession of the Lord. Well, what that means is, sometimes they thought if, if there were uh, some things in a land that had... Well, the simplest way I could explain it would be, let's say there were some pagan things within the land, they would consider the entire land as unclean. And so this is what they're saying. They're saying, you know, hey, if the, if the land of your possession is unclean, then pass over, come back over to our side where the Lord's tabernacle dwells and take possession among us. But rebel not against the Lord, nor rebel against us in building you an altar beside the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, remember him? They said, did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on the congregation of Israel? Again, friends, notice the corporate accountability here. They understood it. And then they finished, they said, and that man perished not alone in his iniquity. So, because of misperception, um, these ambassadors had taken it for granted that their brethren were, were guilty. And they met them with sharp rebukes. They're rebuking them. They're saying, you built an altar. This can only mean you're rebelling against the Lord. They accused them of that very thing. You're rebelling against the Lord. And, and But then they pleaded with them to remember how God's judgments had been visited upon Israel for joining themselves to Baal Peor to the Midianite and their women. Phineas even told them that if they were unwilling to abide in that land with a, without an altar for sacrifice, they would be welcome to share in the possessions and privileges of their brethren on the other side of the Jordan. Now this kind of tells you about some of these people. They love their brethren. They said, look, if you can't stand to, to be over there, if it's unclean, if it's causing you to rebel, whatever... Leave that place. Come over the Jordan. You can live with us. We'll split our land up with you. And all of this because they had perceived the wrong thing. They had come to a wrong conclusion. Now the people were acting right. They, they should have been concerned about the matter. But they were acting rather hastily in condemning the act before they had the details, the full details. They were jumping to conclusions, weren't they? And so, you know, there are a couple of great lessons right now to this point that I want to, to, to point out. First, the two and a half tribes were somewhat at fault, weren't they? Because they built this altar without any explanations to their brethren. And that just happened to lead to suspicion. Now, we also have an enemy to God's people, a spiritual enemy, don't we? And don't you think that he was involved in all this to kind of build up suspicion? Doesn't he like to do that with us? But the Bible tells us about these things, see? They went ahead, they built the altar, they didn't explain anything. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22, Paul said, Abstain from all appearance of evil. 
Now, they didn't necessarily think that that was evil, what they were doing. It may be that they simply didn't even think there would be a misperception of their, their, their actions. And sometimes that happens, doesn't it? I may be doing something and somebody perceives and thinks, oh, they think the worst. I've used this example, and this is going way, way back. Somebody showed up to church one Sabbath afternoon, and this guy was homeless. And he had nothing. He hadn't eaten in like four days. He had no food. He was looking for a pair of pants. I'll never forget this. So you go and you get the community services director, and she says, well, he needs to come back on Monday when we're open. I, could, I just couldn't believe that. Anyway, I went, and I went to the store. Sabbath afternoon, went to the store, got food for this man so he could eat. Now, some may have seen that, and some may think, oh, what's he doing? It's the Sabbath. You can't do that. I was showing them mercy to this man. Now, if we would have been home or it had been easier to get home, take him home and feed him, you know. But we need to abstain from all appearance of evil, see. But like I said, they may not even have thought, and I'm positive because of what they did, they didn't think it was evil at all, what they were doing. Yeah, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, amen. But for whatever reason, their actions led to a false perception by uh, their brethren who came to the wrong conclusion because they failed in another lesson which Paul says in the verse before that 1 Thessalonians 5.21 they originally failed to prove all things and hold fast that which is good but then they, they had some seasoned brethren who said hey let's prove it first let's trust what we're hearing but let's verify it and I'll tell you, friends, if, um, if they hadn't had those seasoned brethren there who were led by the Spirit of God um, and had experience, like the man Phineas, there would have been worn bloodshed because of a failure to verify their perception before coming to a final conclusion. Now, what was the response? Here's the accusations. These guys come in. They lay it out. They show them mercy. They show that they love them. Look, leave the land. Come back to us. Come back to the Lord. They heard all this. So what was the response from the two and a half tribes to that accusation? Joshua 22 and verse 21. Then the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel he shall know. If it be in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day. What are they saying there? If what we have done is indeed rebellion against the Lord, kill us. That's basically what they're saying. You have every right to kill us. Do it. Verse 23. That we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer thereon burnt offering or meat offering, or if to offer peace offerings thereon, let the Lord himself require it. And if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing, saying, so now they're, they're getting to the point, but maybe we did it for this reason, okay? In time to come, your children might speak unto our children and say, What have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us. See, they had the Jordan River that was splitting them up. He said, They said, For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you, ye children of Reuben and children of Gad. You have no part in the Lord. So shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord? Therefore we said, Hey, let's now prepare to build us an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between us and you and our generations after us that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings. In other words, we will still continue to come to Shiloh to do those things that your children may not say to our children in time to come, Ye have no part in the Lord. Therefore said we that it shall be when they should say, 
should so say to us or to our generations in time to come that we may say again, Behold the pattern of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it's a witness between us and you. God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord to build an altar for burnt offerings, for meat offerings, or for sacrifices besides the altar of the Lord our God that is before his tabernacle there in Shiloh they're talking about. So, in reply, the accused explained that their altar was not intended for sacrifice. It was simply to be a witness for the coming generations that although separated, those two and a half tribes were separated from the nine and a half tribes, by the Jordan River, they were of the same faith as their brethren that was in Canaan. That was the intention. They had feared, you see, that in future years, their children might be excluded from the tabernacle as having no part of Israel. You're not allowed to come to Israel. You're not part of Israel. You live on the other side of Jordan. That was their fear. Then this altar, erected after the pattern of the altar of the Lord at Shiloh, it was a replica. It would be a witness that its builders were also worshipers of the living God. Look at verse 33. So the the nine and a half tribes, the representatives there, they heard this. You see, now what do you think their reaction is? Well, we got a little egg on our face here, don't we? They said, and the thing pleased the children of Israel. They were so happy to hear this. And the children of Israel blessed God and did not intend to go up against them in battle to destroy the land wherein the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The children of Gad and Reuben, what they did then they placed upon their altar an inscription pointing out the purpose for which that altar was made. And they said, It shall be a witness between us that Jehovah is God. My name's Joel, and the the name Joel means Jehovah is God. So they put a plaque on it that said Jehovah is God as a witness that they are of the same faith. So they... They endeavored to prevent future misapprehension and to remove what might be a cause of temptation, too. I'll tell you, friends, that too often serious difficulties arise from a simple misunderstanding, even among those who are motivated by the worthiest of intentions, which both sides in this example were. But what does this example teach us about perception? Is perception reality? How do we know that our perception is accurate? First of all, well, we have to verify it, don't we? And how do we verify it? In this case, the children of Israel approached the two and a half tribes to get an explanation for the altar. They were attempting to verify what they had perceived and believed was true. When we have differences among us, we must do the same thing. Or the devil will use suspicion, and he used it here as well in this example, to create division and separation among God's people. And he's done that for thousands of years. And the reason he continues to do it, because a lot of times it works. Now, many today say that perception is reality. My wife said it this morning. My perception is my reality. And I've used that before. My perception is my reality, but that doesn't necessarily mean it is reality. I've come to believe that perception unchallenged becomes one's reality. Because, you see, the only thing that is real is what the creator of what's real says that it is, and we find his record of reality in the Bible. There's some movies that came out long, long time ago, and essentially there's these movies that, and you see, well, 
let me use this as an example. Today, there, the, there's a lot that has to do with virtual reality. Have you ever heard of that, the virtual reality? We've got to be very careful what we do with our minds, friends. Our mind can be tricked. It can be tricked as to what is real, what is not real. And like I said, the only thing that is real is what the creator of what's real says that it is. I find it rather ironic that atheists and unbelievers will say that the Bible's a collection of fables and fairy tales when it's actually a, a book of what is real. <laughs> it was given by the author of real. The author of reality. But even though we we have God's record of reality. We must still be careful to verify our perception of what it contains. Isn't that true? Our perception of what God has shared in his word can be wrong. And that's not reality because we may have misunderstood or we may have rested what he said or we have maybe even ignored exactly what he has said and we've jumped to conclusions like those of Israel did with the two and a half tribes. And this is one of the biggest reasons, beloved, why we have so many different Christian denominations and sects and fanaticisms all over the world. And in order to see what truly is reality, we must be using the correct communication code that God has revealed in his word. The study principles that are laid out there to verify our perception. And I'll be sharing those next time we get together. We're going to talk about Bible study principles that are found in God's Word that He has revealed to us. Instead of trusting our perception of reality as shared by the teachings from ministers and evangelists, not that those are bad, but we need to trust and but verify, don't we, friends? Trust, but verify. How do we do that? We go to the Word of God and we verify it for ourselves. Whatever I'm telling you today, I will encourage you always, and if you know me, you know I've always done it, go to the Bible and check me out. It's like old Pastor C.D. Brooks always said, you check me out. If what I'm saying isn't found in the Bible, you let me know. Because I want to I follow the Bible. I hope you do too, friends. And in speaking of that, Remember what Paul said about the Bereans there in Acts 17, verse 11? He said these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. They were ready to, to hear it and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. They heard it, they trusted, but they were verifying it. He also said in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we really need to know how to rightly divide the word of truth. The really incredible thing is, and I praise God for this, he tells us how to do that. The problem is, a lot of us don't understand exactly, or we might get them in a different order, or we might not do it quite correctly, and so we rest the scriptures, or something gets ignored, or whatever it may be. We miss a principle here or there. You know. And so then our, our perception is going to be a bit skewed, which will skew our reality. But this is something that the elect, the elect, remember that Jesus spoke of there in Matthew 24, verse 24? This is something that the elect will have learned to do. Search the scriptures daily and rightly divide the word of truth. And this is something that we must learn to do, friends, or we will be deceived by the great signs and wonders of the beast before it's all said and done. Now, having said that, there is something else that we all must uh, have in order to be completely safe from forming a wrong perceptual conclusion, especially during those end time signs and wonders. The elect have it. And it's ultimately what saves them from being deceived by the beast's miracles. And they receive this from God, but the thing is all may have it. You want to know what it is? <laughs> I'm going to let you know what it is. Paul tells us what it is. If we go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 9. 
He says, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So we're in this context here. With those signs and wonders that, if it were possible, could deceive the very elect, right? So he says, verse 10, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not, what? The love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, and they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The elect, these elect that Jesus are talking about, and the reason why they are not deceived by these signs and wonders is because they have, first of all, a love of the truth. Uh, the love of the truth as it is in Jesus means the love of all that is comprised in the truth that Christ taught. The godly will not be deceived, you see, if they are students of the scriptures and obedient to follow the plain path marked out for them in the word of God. You see, the elect aren't deceived because they know the truth. And it's not that they have a knowledge of it. They love it. They love the truth. They follow the truth. Jesus is the truth. And these people are referred to as the elect of God because they love the truth more than life itself. And they can discern between right and wrong according to God's word. And only those who have been diligent students of, of the scriptures and who have received the love of the truth will be protected, you see, from the powerful delusion that takes the world captive. And because of their knowledge and love of the scriptures, they will detect the deceiver in his disguise. I'll tell you, friends, that the testing time will come to everyone. We can't run away from it. Are we so firmly established upon the Word of God that we will not yield to the evidence of our senses? When the deceptive miracles come, will we cling to the Bible and the Bible only? If he can... Satan will prevent you from preparing to stand with God on that day. He'll arrange distractions to keep you away from the Word of God. He'll entangle you with earthly treasures or cause you to carry a heavy, wearisome burden that your hearts may be completely concerned with the cares of this life so that the day of trial comes upon you as a thief. In John 14, verse 29, Jesus said, And now I have told you before it come to pass, when it come to pass ye might believe. In having a love for the truth, the elect have victory, you see, over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. Do you want to be able to discern, friends, the false miracles of the beast and not be deceived by them? Do you want to be among the redeemed from all ages and live for eternity? I know I do. Well, Jesus has invited every one of us. And it's a free gift. And he'll fight the battles for us. But it has to do with love. Accepting the love of Christ. That love he offers. And then he'll come in and make us new. In Revelation 3 and verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If a man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Beloved, invite Jesus into your heart right now and learn of him. Give yourself to the one who purchased you by giving his very own life at Calvary for your sins. Learn of him by searching the scriptures and fall in love with he who is the truth. I encourage you to develop such a close relationship with the truth, Jesus, that you would rather die than sin. And this is what Jesus did. And if you want to be like Jesus, that's what you'll do. I'll leave with this quote from Evangelism, page 86. The Lord grant that our senses may be sanctified and that we may learn to measure our ideas, and I'll add, and our perceptions by the work and the teachings of Christ.
There is no better thing to compare all of our perceptions to in the life of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you again so much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you that there is a rock that we can take everything to and compare it all of our perceptions to. That rock that is the truth. That rock that is Christ. I pray that the Holy Spirit will so come into our hearts and minds and change us so that we have a complete love for the truth that is found in Jesus. I don't want to be deceived by the devil. I don't want anyone I know to be deceived by the devil. So I pray an extra measure of the Holy Spirit and wisdom will be poured out upon each and every one of us. And that our love will be uh, uh, something admired from those around us and they want to have and share that same love of Christ that is seen in us. Please give us of your Spirit and cultivate that love within us, I pray in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.